You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Clipper malware is ejected from Google Play. A different cryptojacker is kicking its competitors out of infected machines. Australian authorities continue to investigate the attempted hack of Parliament with Chinese intelligence services as the prime suspects. How do you solve a problem like Huawei? Russia prepares to test its ability to disconnect from the Internet in the event of war. And prosecutors investigate alleged blackmail by below-the-belt selfie. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, February 11th, 2019. Clipper malware, the kind of malicious code that copies and exfiltrates the contents of a clipboard, has been found in the Google Play Store. ESET blogs that it's discovered a strain of the malware, which it tracks as Android Clipper.c impersonating MetaMask. MetaMask is a legitimate app that allows a user to run Ethereum dApps in a browser without the necessity of operating a full Ethereum node. The Clipper malware targets Ethereum users. It copies their wallet address from a clipboard, which is usually where such addresses are kept, since they're complicated and effectively impossible to remember otherwise. The malware attempts to steal alt-currency credentials, and it also replaces the wallet address in the user's clipboard, with an address that leads to the attacker's own wallet. Google removed the bogus app after ESET reported the infestation on February 1st. There's another relatively new altcoin threat out there, too. Trend Micro warns that the XMR Stack CryptoNight cryptocurrency miner is not only active in the wild, specifically in the Linux ecosystem, but that this particular cryptojacker is deeply anti-competitive from a black market point of view. It looks for competing coin miners and other Linux malware on the systems it infects, and then disables them, the better to hog the victim's processing resources for itself. Chinese intelligence services remain prime suspects in the Australian Parliament hack, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation says. The attempt, which is regarded as having been largely unsuccessful, remains under investigation. Suspicion of the Chinese government is based largely on form, a combination of a priori probability, and the tactical similarities between this most recent incident and earlier attacks that have been attributed to China. 
This doesn't, of course, amount to more than circumstantial evidence, and forensic investigation will take some time. Industry reaction has followed, for the most part, a line of, see, we keep telling you no one is immune, and here we go again. The Chinese embassy in Canberra has yet to comment, but one can reasonably expect the customary denials. Opinion among the Five Eyes and many of their allies continues to run strongly against Chinese device manufacturers, and especially against Huawei, whose industry leadership and market penetration make it particularly worrisome as a potential security threat. U.S. President Trump is widely expected to sign an executive order that would effectively constitute a broad ban on Chinese manufacturers from participating in U.S. mobile networks. Fortune and others report that the executive order may come as early as this week. Such an executive order has been discussed openly at least since the last week in December. U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo will take up Huawei with Eastern European governments during an upcoming tour. The University of California, Berkeley, has announced its intent to further restrict research collaboration with Huawei, but in many places, notably the EU and Australia, attempts to wall off Huawei from participation in R&D products have proven more porous than official rhetoric might lead one to believe. For its part, Huawei continues to say it's baffled by the suspicions it faces, but in a continuing charm offensive, the company also says it's open to supervision by the European Union. Microsoft's Security Response Center said at the Blue Hat conference in Israel last week that risks from delaying one of its patches by even 30 days are now lower than the risk of being hit by a zero day. Zero days are also now much more likely to be used in highly targeted attacks than they are in mass public campaigns. These developments reflect a shift in attacker culture, approach, and capability. Microsoft also credits its own improved product security with responsibility for the change. It's harder to weaponize a patched bug now than it used to be, and the company also thinks that a better set of defaults, firewall on and so forth, have helped too. Redmond did add that you'll still get hit if you disregard patching for too long. That is, eventually, the skids will get around to you. Russia will proceed with a test of the autarkic Internet its proposed Digital Economy National Program mandates. ZDNet calls it a plan to disconnect from the Internet, which in a way it is. But in fairness, it also seems a measure designed to give the country's online infrastructure the resilience to cope with full-on cyber warfare. No date has been announced, but the test is expected to be complete before April. The beginning of April is the deadline for comment on the Dumas' proposed law. U.S. federal prosecutors are looking into allegations the National Enquirer attempted to blackmail Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. The Enquirer strongly denies that what it did amounted to blackmail, although the emails Mr. Bezos released in his blog late last week do appear to contain the sort of quid pro quo associated with blackmail, stop the properties you own, like the Washington Post, from doing certain things, and the -the below-the-belt selfies we've got need never see the light of day. The text of the emails in some respects reminds one of a non-disclosure agreement, but of course a communication from an attorney would be likely to fall into that genre. Saudi Arabia, which had been mentioned in press speculation as having played a role in the matter, presumably because it resented the Washington Post's coverage of Jamal Khashoggi's murder, said over the weekend that it had nothing to do with the Enquirer's emails and knows nothing of the affair. 
So how did Mr. Pecker's inquirer get Mr. Bezos's below-the-belt selfies? Speculation about presidential operatives or the wheels within wheels of the deep state is always attractive to those who frequent this 18th-century coffeehouse we call the Internet. But getting a hold of an emailed selfie isn't really all that mysterioso. As a Security Boulevard blog post from Errata Security very reasonably points out, there are lots of ways an enterprising sleazehound can lay their virtual, if grubby, hands on these sorts of things. Well, hey, you might object. Surely a new economy billionaire like Mr. Bezos would have solid security, right? Well, sure, maybe. But as Errata's post observes, such selfies usually have recipients, and maybe they're not so secure. Just ask Carlos Danger, we might add. And it's relatively easy to get into someone's email with a credential stuffing attack, especially if they, as so many of us do, reuse passwords. Get a hit from collections number one through five, and Bob's your uncle. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, great to have you back. Um, we uh, had an article come by. This was from the Naked Security blog over on Sophos. And uh, Lisa Voss wrote this. This is about politicians blocking social media users and whether or not they're violating the First Amendment. I remember uh, when President Trump came into office, there was a, a dust-up over this of whether or not he was allowed basically to block people on Twitter. What's going on here? Yeah, this is just a fascinating issue. So the First Amendment uh, gives us the right to petition our government for redress of grievances. And what that means in plain English is we get to yell at politicians uh, and tell them that what they're doing is wrong and 
tell them what they should be doing. Traditionally, that's been done by calling one's member of Congress, sending letters to the White House. Obviously, things have have changed in the digital age. Uh, So what this case was about was, the article just calls her a bureaucrat, but it's a government official in the state of Virginia who had a personal page uh, or a, a personal Facebook profile, as well as a profile representing the agency that she worked for, um, which was the uh, Board of Supervisors in Loudoun County, Virginia. A member of the public, basically an old adversary of this bureaucrat, uh, had written a a series of complaints on this person's public Facebook page. uh, And this member of the Board of Supervisors blocked that individual from commenting further. Now, she did end up uh, unblocking him, so to speak, Uh, So he was actually only blocked for a relatively limited amount of time. But what the court held is that this is a violation of one's First Amendment right to petition their government. And the idea is that there's this distinction between a public forum and a private forum. So obviously, the law wouldn't allow us to go to a politician's dinner party and yell at them for voting on one way on a piece of legislation. Hmm. But when we're in a public forum or when they're performing the duties of their office, that's when that First Amendment right is applicable. So that's the distinction that courts have really drawn, whether this is a private, personal social media profile used to conduct a person's you know, personal affairs versus an official government page. And what the court held here is that this was an official government page, was a Facebook page representing this member of the Board of Supervisors. Uh, It had official government uh, announcements on it. That was the evidence that they had that this was an official use uh, or a public forum. Of course, you know, the elephant in the room here is the president's use of the block button on uh, Twitter as it relates to his personal Twitter account, Real Donald Trump. So he argued unsuccessfully in a New York district court that his real Donald Trump Twitter account was a private account representing him personally. It was not an official government account, and therefore he had the right to block individual users. And the court, I think correctly in that case, held that the way his Twitter account has evolved since his presidency began it really is a public forum, and it's hard to argue against that. I mean, he's made personnel announcements from the real Donald Trump Twitter account. He's announced you know, some very serious policy changes, like we're withdrawing from Syria, mm. all different types of very public declarations that have taken place on his personal Twitter account. You know, And that distinguishes him from previous presidents, like Obviously, Barack Obama had a official White House Twitter account and his own personal Twitter account, but he did not use his personal Twitter account to make public policy proclamations. The Second Circuit, uh, the Court of Appeals in New York, is going to hear that Trump Twitter case, and we'll see if they take some guidance from this Virginia case. I mean, I think for the president's Twitter account, it's pretty clear cut. He, through his actions strongly indicates that the real Donald Trump Twitter account is a public forum. It's a place where he makes announcements about public policy, government decisions, appointments, and blocking individual users from being able to access that content, I think, is pretty much a per se violation of the First Amendment. Now, help me understand. uh, It seems to me like there's there's a civility issue here. If I go to my congressman's 
office and I stand outside the door and I yell and scream and, and spew profanities and insults, isn't it within their right to eventually remove me? Yes. Um, so there are time, place, and manner restrictions that are acceptable under the First Amendment. Um, some of that, although this isn't universally applied, but some of that can include harassing language, obscenities, etc. Um, and I think that's one of the things that President Trump has tried to argue as it relates to his Twitter account, that people are posting obscenities, offensive language. As it applies to private individuals, that's really a no-brainer. As it applies to public officials, the First Amendment is extremely strong. There are some ideas, political ideas, that cannot properly be expressed without the use of obscenities. It reminds me of one of my favorite First Amendment cases where um, an individual named Cohen, in the case of Cohen v. California, wore a sweatshirt to a public court proceeding that said, F*** the draft. So the, the rules of the California court said you could not wear clothes with any obscenities uh, within the courtroom. And the Supreme Court said that's a violation of the First Amendment because there's no other way to express that exact sentiment. Saying mm -hmm. I strongly dislike the military draft or screw the draft is very different than the word that he actually used. Mm -hmm. So there are Twitter terms of service about harassment and there are certainly time, place and manner restrictions about, you know, screaming and yelling at members of Congress, the First Amendment presents a very, very high bar. And I think standard obscenities, if it truly is a public forum, is not something that can be restricted uh, consistent with the First Amendment. Hmm. We want to have a, a robust marketplace of ideas. That's what our most cherished Supreme Court justices have, have written about as it relates to the First Amendment. And if I want to express my opinion very strongly about the president's actions in response to what is pretty clearly to me to be a public forum, a place where he conducts the business of our government, then the First Amendment protects that interest very, very strongly. Hmm. All right. Uh, it's uh, fascinating to see it play out, as always. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, 
Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.